Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Here with Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, my next guest uh, has been, oh, one of those people I've admired my uh, uh, entire adult life uh, in many ways. And even when I was a minister, uh, this gentleman used to help me and guide me as an advisor. And uh, even then I admired him greatly because he was always onto it. And I'm talking about Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, who is one of those rare economists because he actually knows what he's talking about. And uh, he doesn't go in for the political palaver uh, that we see so many uh, economists do. Uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson actually sticks to the substance of economics. And he's had a very long and distinguished career, uh, been through the Treasury, been consulting, uh, been with CS First Boston, uh, and is now with the very excellent think tank called the New Zealand Initiative which is keeping an eye on government spending, government regulation, uh, government reforms in education, and whether they're on track or off track. And if you want to catch up with where New Zealand is uh, in terms of policy, what we could be doing, I commend to you to go to the New Zealand Initiative. But right now, we're very lucky indeed to have Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. Good morning, Bryce. Yes, good morning, Rodney, and thank you for those kind remarks. Oh well, you are just you're just a tremendous brain um, and tremendous uh, analytic uh, in terms of your analytical skill and the fact that you don't get swayed by the day to day winds of what's popular and what's not. You actually stick to the issues, and you're also, I have to say, Bryce, extremely polite, uh, which I always appreciate, particularly these days. So those compliments were genuine. Yes, thank you, Rodney. And I can say the same about you too. You always stick to the issues and um, do your best to stay uh, polite. And oh. it makes the world it makes the world a difference. Yeah. Sometimes I do find my, my I sometimes I do find myself getting emotional about getting angry. But no, um, tell me, Bryce, what made you choose to be an economist? Yeah, um, I come from a science family. Um, my father was a DSIR scientist, a chemist, and um, my older brother, who was very influential on me, um, went on and did a, a PhD in chemistry. So I just followed in their footsteps and um, did a, a chemistry honours degree myself. It, it was at a time when you were really on an escalator. You, you got into high school, and you went into the top sort of class and you were always told that you were scholarship material and you'd better work jolly hard and do that. And you had to specialise in arts or science at about the fifth form. And I found that quite a hard choice. Um, so I went the sciences way, obviously, given my family background and that sort of thing, and um, did okay uh, at scholarship. And so stage specialized I, I missed out all stage one at university and went straight into honors mass one and honors chemistry one and um, so it really was a treadmill uh very hard work and um what I university got, was that bryce uh that was 
So I left high school, yeah, no, 1966 to 68. That was the three yes, years. But what three university? Years and yeah. what university did you attend? Yeah, I did all my degrees at Canterbury. Yeah, Canterbury. I'm a So that was a, that's, that's a big deal to go from high school straight to second year honours or first, oh, first year, year First year honours. Yeah, uh, but that's second yes, year. I, I, I skipped stage one here. Yeah, but quite a few of my class were doing that. It, it wasn't, um, you know, it, uh, it wasn't out of the ordinary. It was sort of a pipeline. A pipeline. Well, I'm not going to tell you about my three years in the fifth form. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so 68 was my graduation year, and did I go on with a PhD or not? Well, I uh, in that last year, I sort of lost motivation a bit and didn't really want to, couldn't really see myself as a chemist, but also um, I wasn't doing particularly well grade-wise, and the bottom was falling out of the market for scientists worldwide because the Americans had put a man on the moon and then they were cutting back on um, scientific research. So there was a bit of a glut coming on. And um, my, even, then, even then, Bryce, you were thinking like an economist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was really thinking, or, you know, as I suppose every young person does, well, I, I want to spend my working life doing something I enjoy. Um, if I'm not enjoying this, I've sort of been on a railroad train into it. Um, should I keep going? And that was the decision about whether to pursue a PhD or not. But um, I was a very keen soccer man, and my first 11 soccer coach at high school was a, a history teacher. And um, one of the things he'd given me at high school was Paul Samuelson's Stage 1 Economics book which was a fabulous book at its time, an amazing thing. And I've always liked history, um, and I was good at maths. So when you put history and maths together, you, you're, you've got an excellent background for economics. So then I discovered that um, a leading intellect at the University of Canterbury, Bert Brownlee, was running the economics department, and he was running what was called a Knight's Move course, where you could cross-credit all your maths and statistics and go straight into stage three economics and statistics and do an honours degree in two years. So um, I did, and there were quite a few sort of scientists and mathematicians doing that. So um, I joined that to give it a go. You know, there's a degree, an honours degree in two years and um, with other good quality people who were doing it, and I just loved it. You know, you, you were, you were, what you were reading in your textbooks and in the lectures was what was really happening in the world outside you at the same time, what you're reading in the newspaper. And Bert Brownlee, uh, the economics department that he built, as I understand it, Bryce, was regarded uh, as the best in New Zealand at that time. Well, the others wouldn't agree with that. Uh, uh, but, but, well, that's what I always he heard yeah, when I was but I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you an anecdote. Yeah, Bert in the, um, in, in the staff lunchroom, uh, when I, you know, after I'd done my degree, I went on and did a PhD there. Uh, yeah, he would sometimes talk about you know, the, the poor uh, analytical quality of some of the stuff going on in the economics departments elsewhere in the universities. And I always took that as the grain of salt, you know, a bit of tribalism sort of stuff. 
I'd, I'd never had any contact with them. But then I went to a, a an annual general meeting of the Association of Economists, where they have lots of lectures and stuff. And they had a panel presentation uh, at the end of one of the days where uh, heads of department from around, economics department from around the universities, uh, had a chat about the teaching of education. <laughs> and there, to my absolute amazement, I saw the other professors, some of them, criticizing uh, Bert because Canterbury was too rigorous. <laughs> <laughs> Even then. That, Even that. then. So, so that's, where, that's when I decided I'd been a bit too skeptical of Bert. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it an odd thing to think that being too rigorous can be a criticism? Yes, yeah, although um, there, there is a sense in which it's valid that um, the, the economics profession, with Paul Samuelson leading the way, um, really, really uh, drove mathematical, rigorous mathematical modelling uh, into, into economics. And it was a wonderful technique for sorting out fallacious arguments and sorting out factors which really were likely to be more important. Uh, than other factors. But um, the criticism is, of course, that models are always an oversimplification of what's going on. And uh, if you rely too much on a model, you're going to make a big mistake and get things wrong. So, um, and Samuelson had come from a mathematics background rather than a history background. And I think he lacked, um, now wonderful though he was, an amazing contribution, he lacked a historical, the sort of historical feel that, say, Milton Friedman had so, so famously, and no one's ever let him forget it, uh, Samuelson postulated that the Soviet Union was producing such high rates of economic growth, sort of comparable to America, um, that perhaps um, communism was could be as uh, as successful materialistically as capitalism. <laughs> yes, and he put that in one of the editions of his textbook. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's uh, that wonderful stage one textbook. I think I've got a copy. Uh, and and uh, I I think <laughs> I think Bryce, my memory of the controversial statement was, and it was sort of despite all the deaths involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that came out. Um, again, because it was a sort of famous incident, that sort of came out in 1987 or 89, 88, sort of like yeah. two or three years before the war came down, and we discovered that um, far from being something to fear, the USSR was a total economic basket case. Yeah, that's right. You couldn't trust those GDP growth figures anyway, no. um, just like I don't trust China as much these days. When you've no. got totalitarian societies... Um, they're not going to let a statistics department publish figures which are going to make the public lose confidence in them. <laughs> you always felt reading and following these guys, and they were mostly guys, that Milton Friedman always had, a, he was very rigorous, he was very good at his mathematics, just like Samuelson, but I think growing up poor and his background he always kept that common touch when he, I mean, I never met the man, but when you read his work, when you saw his lectures and presentations, he always kept a common touch, I felt. Whereas I felt um, Paul Samuelson was that clear, uh, almost, you know, 
characteristic professor with his head in the clouds? I, the way I, I sum it up is that Samuelson's, as a positive economist, um, was one of the two or three most outstanding of the last hundred years, really. Yes. Um, but not having that mathematical, mathematical breakdown and not that deep understanding of, of history and human nature, um, he wasn't. He wasn't as alert as someone like Friedman was to the reality of human nature and what politicians will can do if given enough rope uh, and a strong enough incentive to to bribe their supporters so that they get re-elected. Um, well, that was the- so. So yeah. So Friedman was much more attuned to the realities and. Um, imperfectibility of government and of humans more generally and that made him wiser on political economy Mm. and of course implicit in a lot of that economics following Samuelson was that governments could and would intervene to make things better for everyone and on our side of the fence if you like uh, and looking at the experience of government is that politicians have got their own incentives, uh, yeah. which is to get elected, and bureaucrats have got their own incentive. And it's uh, fanciful to think that a government will be doing this big calculation about what's best for all. Um, and that's where the Samuelson sort of model breaks down, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. It, it's the difference in the perception of of human behavior um yeah that's important there is one other distinction i think is that samuelson was very careful about what he said he 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 wanted to be the golden mean whereas uh, friedman in his public work as distinct from his academic work he was out to persuade public opinion Mm. So Friedman would often say things like, there is no way that, and um, that'd be, and that was how he communicated with the part, uh, with, with the um, the public. It wasn't, well, on the one hand, this or on the other hand, that he was definitive. I remember reading once that Samuelson sort of quoted uh, uh, Friedman as saying, there is no way that, and, and Samuelson's comment was, my words can't even begin to, my mouth can't even begin to form those words. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and so Samuelson came across as much more measured than Friedman. But Friedman was more passionate and convincing and basically, in my view, was more right, uh, much more right about political economy. Mm. The um, It must have also... The experience I notice of economists and those that study a little bit of macroeconomics is you get very sceptical and of experts and models, um, particularly models. And so when the resource depletion models came along uh, that we're all going to run out of resources, economists were sceptical because they understood prices and how prices work to stimulate um, entrepreneurship and inventiveness, but also 
they were skeptical of models themselves as being able to predict the future because economists had struggled with models for some time before then. Yes, I think that's very true and and very lasting. And I would say, uh, first of all, you know, with my science math background, I like models and have put hundreds of hours really into understanding models. Um, and you have to understand their their strengths and weaknesses. But um, I, one of my early memories, uh, people on other professions don't seem to have had to have learned humility about models and forecastings like economists have. And to talk to Paul Samuelson again, I remember one of his articles looked at whether economists' forecasts of GDP over the next year or two ahead were better than a naive model of simply tossing a coin or else saying, well, it'll go up in the next year by as much as it went up or down by last year. And what Samuelson showed and others showed was economists' forecasts tended not to be better than a naive forecast. So um, we learn to be sceptical of models. And um, before I get on to the climate change models in this context, um, one of my favourite economists at MIT was Robert Solo. And when the Club of Rome brought out their doomsday models of uh, in about 1960, that um, if everything kept growing in a linear fashion and nothing changed, the world was going to run out of resources mighty soon and we might be all starving by 1970 or 1980 or something. And Samuelson just pointed out that there were absolutely no adjustment mechanisms. It was an engineering sort of model with feedback loops, um, basically self-perpetuating stuff. Um, no, no consciousness whatsoever that prices, well, prices weren't in the model. The prices would be changing, signaling scarcity, and people would be switching what they were doing. And um, that's what I feel the same when trying to debate with all these doomsday predictions and the climate uh, change sort of thing, that people are putting far too much weight on models which they don't really understand. They're uh, and it's not just the models, it's the human behaviour they're, they're, they're assuming. So they're projecting what's going to happen to emissions and stuff out to 2100 or 2200. But who knows what's really going to happen? There could be volcanoes, there could be a comet from outer space, we could already be at the start of a, a China-US-Russia war, the third <laughs> war. <laughs> um, people... people um, are getting fixated on a single source of catastrophe. Um, and oh, another facet to it is that they're tending to say we've got to spend vast amounts on, on mitigation with one hand, but on the other hand, they're saying, well, we, mitigation's not going to work, so we've got to go and organise managed retreat and, and do adaption. And it always seems to me that's, that's inconsistent if... if if you're spending, being asked to spend the vast amounts on mitigation, then by implication, it must should be worth doing, in which case the, the need for managed retreat should be much less. And um, there, there just seems seems to be a disconnect. The, the game sort of seems to be to keep people alarmed. Um, but that's, that's going to run out of room. People are, are going to yes. get tired of people crying more. <laughs> 
I think that's very much happening um, because um, there's only so many crises that you survive before you realize that, you know, the next thing mightn't be a crisis. Um, yes. <laughs> I also, too, just what you're saying there about mitigation and uh, adaption uh, versus uh, staged retreat, the other great thing you notice with economics it's a great thing to have studied for when you come to think about public policy. And you can almost distinguish people that have studied a little bit of economics versus those that have never studied economics when it comes to public policy, because the economists are very, un, uh, they understand opportunity cost. That is to say that if we do this, we won't be doing that. Uh, they understand trade-offs so that, um, you know, is this the best thing that we could be doing? Um, they understand human behaviour. And when you were talking about that, how humans adjust to policy changes or to uh, challenges ahead, there's a great line that that giant of economics Adam Smith used, which is that human beings aren't sort of pieces on a chessboard that you can move about like a pawn or a bishop or a rook because he said, you know, when you put them on a square, they don't necessarily stay there. Um, they have their own movement and momentum. And that gives economists, I think, a great insight on public policy choices. Yes, that's right. Um, that simple solutions are probably going to be awfully wrong. Um <laughs> I think the yeah, opportunity cost is crucial and the sense of of unintended consequences of uh, people aren't just pawns on the chessboard. If you, if you change their circumstances, they're going to adjust and they're going to adjust in a way which minimises the, the impost on them. And um, they'll adjust in ways you haven't thought of because they're inventive and ingenious and um, and will make things up and will invent things. So, yeah. yeah, a bit of humility comes with that. But let me let me start with the opportunity cost one because I think we're in a society today where a large bulk of, of voters, um, you know, education, hospitals, sort of... Um, uh, welfare area, virtually everywhere, science, think that money from government is free. Um, they don't, so they lobby government for more of it, and they never even think they have to explain why um, them getting more money out of government might not mean that someone else can't pay the rent or can't, put us, yes. can't really feed the kids well or get them to the GP. And I was I was thinking of writing a, an article on this, but I a few a month or two ago I saw someone wanting to defend the government put a list of something like ninety good things the government had done. They thought uh, for the country, well, it spent over fifty billion dollars, so it, it spent a lot of money, and all these things were about spending or regulation, um, which none of which were going to improve the well-being of the community unless the benefits of that spending were greater than the foregone benefits of spending it somewhere else. 
And that consideration was completely and utterly absent from this document. The presumption was entirely people, the writer wanted, wanted the public to think that because the government had spent this money on activity A, it had done good. No, no discussion needed, no, no need even to make the case that it actually cost the country something to put the money in, in that direction. Was it worth it? So I, I think we're at a point now where opportunity cost has, has largely disappeared um, yes. from public discourse. And um, it means that massive, massive waste occurs. <laughs> It's always seemed to me that Treasury, when it was decent, um, was always being criticised by every other department and by politicians in the government of the day, simply because they'd be pointing out that there was such a thing as an opportunity cost. And politicians wanted to be presenting their ideas as costless. And there's... I guess when you're a politician and you announce, you know, your big spend up and everyone's going to be better off, there's nothing worse <laughs> a department explaining that in actual fact, um, this is what it's cost, uh, this is what it's going to return, and there's a million other things you could be doing with that money that would be a better result, not least of which is leaving it in people's pockets. Yes, that's right. If, if there are any listeners who, who, who are listening who would like to read more about this, I'd, I'd recommend um, Thomas Sowell's books. Um, and he's he's been he's a, a top uh, economic thinker. He's an American uh, academic economist, well retired now. He's written a lot of books, but he's just so good. At so explain, good. explain Thomas Sowell at explaining these concepts in terms that um, others can understand, that the lay people can understand. He, he is um, totally wondrous. And, of course, he did his PhD under both uh, Milton Friedman and George Stigler. Yes, I remember one anecdote. He said that uh, when he was an under, uh, undergraduate, doing his undergraduate degree, and the lecturers topped and asked the class what they do about some public policy matter, and, and so put his hand up and said the obvious thing, and um, thinking he'd be right. And he said, then the lecturer said, well, what would happen next? And uh, Thomas Sowell, within two or three minutes of thinking about it, that, realised he'd made a complete ass of himself <laughs> because what was going to happen next wasn't at all what his first presumption had been when, when he made that it. Should be, that should be tattooed on every politician's inside of their forehead, shouldn't it? That what yeah, happened yeah. Next. And it's those simple things like we have this huge housing shortage and people unable, families unable to afford housing. And it's entirely a, a consequence of high, the high prices are entirely a consequence of poor government policy. And, yes. um, you know, and most recently in the rental markets, let alone in terms of the Resource Management Act and constraining land, and, and it's that idea of what happens next, that if you down on what on on landlords 
um, ability to manage their own property or to kick out poor tenants, uh, rents are going to rise uh, and houses, rental houses are going to come short. If you clamp the supply of land, land prices are going to go up, affecting poor people. You'll pr- produce a great wealth effect for those that are already on the property market. An economist mightn't be able to forecast the direction of the economy, but they certainly understand with those mad interventions what does happen next, don't they? Yes, yes, and there's a whole history of experiences um, in New Zealand in the past and in other countries to draw on as well. When you finished your PhD at Canterbury, what did you then do? When I'd finished it? Yes. Uh, yeah, well, I, I got interested in macroeconomics. And so the you know the obvious place to work as a macroeconomist at the time was was the treasury. So I um, as as soon as I'd finished, I um, well actually no, as soon as I finished my honours degree, I jumped on the Inter Island and got a job at the treasury, and uh, I worked there for a couple of years and really um, you know really was absorbed by that. You're, you're working on the public policy problems which are most important to the country you're in at the time. Um, so that's big work. But that that persuaded me that I needed a more thorough um, and rigorous background in economics. So I did my PhD um, after a couple of years in the Treasury. Uh, well, after one full year, and if I think if I think it through, one on a bit. Yeah, so I was a macroeconomist at the time, you know, heavily influenced by Paul Samuelson, um, and not not at all a, a fan of Milton Friedman at the time. I thought he was a bit bit extreme. Um, he was talking about floating exchange rates and other things, which uh, you know were unimaginable. <laughs> You've just done a piece on productivity. And you did a comparison uh, back to 1996 to 2022, I think, on the productivity growth of New Zealand versus Australia. And what I'd like to cover is what that difference is, why it's significant, why, why it's significant, what it means for us. Because a lot of people think that productivity is just working harder and longer. And a lot of people think, oh, well, there's more to life than money. And I want you, you to walk, walk us through why productivity is important, what's happening with us compared to Australia, which is a country that we know and understand and can compare ourselves to, what it means and what we can do better. Does that sound reasonable? <laughs> it's quite, quite a list of topics. Um well, well, to speak to it first, yeah. So the um, little report or, or article it is, which Rodney's referring to, was a 400-word uh, article, which we put out about a bit over a week ago now, I think. And the occasion for writing that article was that Statistics New Zealand had just published um, the la- their latest estimates of productivity for New Zealand for the year ended March 2022. So that was an updated uh, statistic, and uh, productivity is so important, I'd better come to that. It was worth bringing to the public's attention. 
Um, but Statistics New Zealand had, had happily also presented a comparison with Australia. And that's, that's what I chose to uh, focus the attention on in the 400 words. Why is productivity important and why is the comparison with Australia important? Well, people, productivity is important because there are all sorts of the good things in life which nearly everyone is short of. For people who are quite well of, what they're short of is, is something people at the bottom wouldn't dream of being able to afford, but they still feel short. Um, and for, for the common person, they're short of awful, awfully a lot of things. They'd like more money to pay their mortgage or to pay their rent, or they'd like to have a bit of a holiday or uh, repair the car or that sort of thing. So... And we see how pressured people feel about money when we just pick up the newspaper every day or in over a week, take track of how many different groups of the population are trying to get more money out of government. Why are they getting more money out of government? Because they can use it as income and because they're short of income. So um, people do clamour for more income. They actually demand it from governments. So productivity is how much income the country really produces uh, with the resources it's got, the people who are in the, in the workforce uh, who've got a job, and the people who've got capital to wrap around the people in the workforce, the capital labour ratio. Um, and those two things determine how much income a worker can get. It's how much they can produce in a day and they can produce more if they've got um, a motorised vehicle to work with than if they've just got a shovel. So You get paid more if you're driving a digger compared to if you're in a poor country and you have to rely on a shovel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because And it's easier work. Yeah. And the economists or the stati- uh, Department of Statistics measures that as uh, output per hour work and that's labour productivity. So labour productivity goes up if there's more capital per worker. You know, we've got, each worker's got more productive machines to use, uh, better able to do the job and do it faster and more efficiently. So um, if, if, if the country wants higher incomes, um, it, it can't create more people or more capital out of, out of thin air. It's got to do better with what it's got. And I think Ernest Rutherford said that famously once in the science context, is we don't have much money, so we'd better think. So um, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the New Zealanders couldn't match the spending of uh, on X-rays and the like of the Americans and, and that. So... Um, so the productivity thing is important, and you and I have, have always known that. Um, and um, it grows, if you get it right, a little bit of difference in the growth rate in time makes a phenomenal difference over 40 or 60 years. Now, I think you were head of the Act Party, Rodney, weren't you, when um, you persuaded John Key's government to set up a 2025 yes. task force. Yes. Uh, which um, I was a member of and Don Brash led. Um, and that's job was to advise John Key's government on what 
policies would be necessary, we thought, if, if New Zealand was going to close the income gap with Australia. Now, why is Australia important? Australia is important because it's our closest neighbour. We've got the same sort of customs um, as us, same language. It's very, it's a very attractive opportunity for a New Zealander who's able and productive, or, or even uh, less so, to jump the ditch and get a job in Australia. And um, my one of my sons is a chef, for example. He can get a third of of, of, of uh, an income higher by shooting over to Perth to be to be a chef. It might be more now, for all I know. Um, so so if if we're not competitive with Australia and we're not very competitive, then you have the problem that you're you're putting children and stuff paying for their education and that sort of thing. And then they jump over the ditch and um, the Australians and they get the benefit. And you as the country are struggling a bit. You're, you're losing good people, uh, losing critical mass. So um, uh, the relativity between New Zealand and Australia is, is quite important. And actually, there's no real excuse for not being uh, uh, able to do as well in Australia. Um, so if we're not doing as well, it should inspire us to ask the question, well, why not? What are we doing wrong? Um, what are they doing that we're not? And so that's why um, I've always liked to do a comparison with Australia. And another reason why I come and look at Australia is there's a tendency to be very insular. And if something's going wrong in, in New Zealand, to say, well, um, it's because we're doing this or that. And, and my reaction is always, well, let's look at Australia and see uh, if it's also going going badly over there. And, um, and what are they doing? And can we learn from that? And there's so much similarity between the economies that I often find that... Um, the sole New Zealand exp explanation doesn't really wash because it's happening in Australia too. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you, if, you, if you don't have something to benchmark your performance against that's independent of you, you don't really know where you're going to be running last in the Olympics or, or up there with the gold medal. Well, it's a bit, it's more important than the All Blacks beating Australia. Isn't it? Because oh, it's yeah, it going to determine whether our kids and our grandkids are going to be living and working in New Zealand or living and working in Perth. Yeah, yes, or London, or, or yes. So tell me, what did the comparison between Australia and New Zealand show? Well, there's a lot of uh, yeti noise and productivity statistics. They bounce around all over the place. So it's good to take a, a long-term average. And I use the longest-term average that I could because the statistics New Zealand data uh, comparing us with Australia only went back to 1996. So we had um, the growth rates between 1996 and 2022. And for labour productivity, which is the crucial thing for the real wage, um, had grown only 1.3% per annum during that period for New Zealand as against 1.9% uh, per annum for Australia. So, you know, that's almost 50% more for Australia, 1.9, 1.3% 1 
compared to 1.3. And, uh, well, that's just in one year, but, but we're talking about something here which is running for 26 years. So over 26 years, that sort of difference when you compounded, it showed that um, firms in Australia could afford to pay workers 63% more uh, in 2022 than in 1996. But in New Zealand, you know, the, they could afford to pay only 40% more. I should explain that these figures are all adjusted for inflation. So you, you're talking about the real increase in the standard of living, uh, potential standard of living of these orders of magnitude. I'm not, not just talking about money incomes. So that's 63%. Firms could afford to pay more in Australia to compared to forty percent in New Zealand, so that's not a case of closing the gaps by twenty twenty five, which is um, what that task force was looking for until um, John Key terminated it. And that's uh, and just that period nineteen ninety six. I thought you were picking on nineteen ninety six because that's when I became an MP and. Um, a contribution to public life is to um, widen the gap with Australia. Um, it's a it's a terrible statistic because just to understand it in that time period alone, as I understand what you're saying, um, what a worker produces, you're twenty three percent ahead. Is that the cricket? Twenty three percent. Yeah, yeah. Twenty three percent ahead in Australia. That's, that's, that's nearly a quarter, isn't it? Yeah, and so that's your son, the chef, getting that extra money, right? Because while a chef, funnily enough, isn't more productive, you've got to pay a chef to not drive a truck or not work in the mines, yeah. and that's that idea in economics and economics that a rising tide does live all, does lift all boats. Because the chef is only going to make so many meals uh, a night, say, but you've got to employ them. You've got to drag them off some other work. And that's what drives wages up. It's that competition for your son's labor, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For all of us, the labor of all of us. That's right. For all of us. And in Australia, um, they're shooting ahead. They can pay more and they can have a higher standard of living, um, spend more money on pensions if they want, spend more money on housing, have have better cars, have all the all the things, all the material things um, that people show daily that they want. Yeah. Now, the, the next big thing which we must tell listeners is that this data was always also able to show um, where the bulk of the difference was coming from statistically. And what it was that um, Australia, Australian firms were wrapping a lot more capital per worker uh, than New Zealand was. The rate of growth was, was miles higher. Um, so specifically on the measures, and where these are all adjusted for inflation, so we're talking about it in real terms, uh, capital per worker in Australia doubled between 1996 and 2022. Whereas in New Zealand, it was less than half that. It was 44%. So that's a massive difference. And so Australia is, is able to attract a lot more investment per capita than New Zealand is. And that's something we should be thinking about. Indeed. And, and I mean, that's like 
driving around in a Ford Anglia versus driving around in a Ferrari, isn't it? It's just that capital. And, of course, well, yeah, paint. going like that, absolutely. And, it, and one of the great tragedies is because of a poor understanding of economics and the people that speak out in the media and get reported with quips is we, we have a negative uh, view of investment into New Zealand. Yes, we do. Um, yeah. Which is astonishing because if you think about it, um, people investing in New Zealand are giving you their money so you can buy better machines and produce more and have a better life. Right? Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a wonderful thing because, and yes, you, you give them a return, but if you don't have that investment into your country, you're going to struggle to provide for your children against other nations. Yeah, well, that's right. You're you're slipping you're slipping behind. So, um, in my in my article, I, I I didn't focus on the disincentives to invest in New Zealand by um, New Zealanders and foreigners combined. I just focused on the foreigner one. But you know, you made the point earlier about landlords. I mean, it, this government's hostile to landlords. I think it's stopping interest deductibility for a business expense for landlords is, um, you know, is a massive negative. Um, and uh, the, you get, you get less, less rental housing then, and so you, you get people finding the rents, uh, places to rent are far too scarce and, and the cost is far too high. And, and it's that great, that great stage one economics point about the incidence of attacks in the sense that um, while you might bring in that interest rate, uh, that inability to deduct that um, interest payment, and you think you're socking it to the landlords, um, well, landlords aren't just going to sit there and take that. They can exit the market. Yeah and dodge the tax, and, of course, ultimately, to get a house, the poor family that are renting end up having to pay. Yeah, and it is an economics training which makes you alert to these unintended consequences and how they work through. And, you know, as you said earlier, that can be a big difference between a layperson thinking about public policy and um, and someone with an economic way of thinking. I'm sure you know this anecdote of um, Tom Sowell, but I'll share it with you and listeners, that great one of Thomas Sowell, that he was a Marxist. He grew up a Marxist and um, went off to the Korean War and came back and under the GI Bill uh, went to university. I think it was Berkeley he went to and then on to Chicago. And he studied under two Nobel Prize winners, uh, Milton Friedman and George Stigler, or Gary Becker, I can't remember. I know it was Stigler. And then um, he left, still a Marxist. Can you believe that? <laughs> and and um, he worked as an intern one summer in the Department of Labor in Washington, D.C. 
and that finished him for months. <laughs> because, as he said, there wasn't the lectures of Milton Friedman that disabused him of the inability of government. It was actually working in the Department of Labor and seeing how government operated, which is a very funny story, I think. Yes, that's right. <laughs> very, very sharp brain. Um, yeah, so so in, in my little note, I thought, okay, so so Australia's attracted massively more capital per worker than us. Um, what might be behind that? Well, well, one factor is the Australian mining industry needing overseas capital. But I went in and, and dug out the untad figures on it and found that um, the stock of private and direct investment in Australia uh, was 60% higher per person than it was in New Zealand. So they've been a lot more open to overseas investment uh, than we have. And we've been prejudiced against foreign direct investment pretty well all my lifetime. I've actually got a copy of Roderick Dean's PhD uh, thesis on my bookshelf, and, and his thesis was on um, foreign investment in New Zealand, and uh, he documented the prejudices against it at the time. And um, it's a prejudice that's holding this country back. Um, I find I get emails from people, you know, when I write articles, people are not economists, and they say, look, I, I just hate hate to think of all that income, you know, to the banks and like going off overseas. It would be far better if it was kept in New Zealand. Well, um, that, they're not thinking about opportunity cost. They're only getting the income because they've got their money here in the first place. If, if they had to put the money in, in here, the income wouldn't be generated here and they wouldn't be getting it. Um, Secondly, a lot of that money, although it appears in the accounts as belonging to foreigners, um, it, it's not necessarily taken out of the country. Quite a lot of it is. It depends on the situation. If the if the country's thought of doing well, it'll be reinvested because of the growing population and that sort of thing. The 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 problem isn't you know that money some money's come here and a chunk of it's going. It belongs to foreigners with income, and the, the problem is we haven't got enough here. Yes. We, we've got all this this lower capital per worker than Australia, and the gap's getting bigger. Um, We're still carrying that Marxist view of capital and workers being antagonistic. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the yeah the group theory, the class consciousness of Marxism, still very prominent amongst non-economists. And yes. I think Malthusian um, uh, thinking is still very prominent yes. amongst non-economists as well. And it's quite funny, isn't it, when you're having a debate with, well, I'll call them a lefty, but someone advocating some mad policy, and they say to you, oh, you just got that, you know, old-time economic thinking, and they are presenting you with Marxism uh, combined with Malthusianism, which is sort of pre-economic thinking, uh, pre-modern economic thinking at least, because Adam Smith was uh, actually a good economist. He just wasn't writing at the time uh, of the marginal revolution where modern economics was born. Um, yeah. and so the funny thing is you're getting this diatribe 
from someone who's telling you that you're, you know, stuck in old time economic thinking and they're stuck in pre-economic thinking. Yes, so there's that very Malthusianism. I think the, the title for that Robert Solo article on the Club of Rome stuff I mentioned earlier was something like uh, the, the tick and little, uh, the tickle nick and little syndrome, the computer that tried, cried wolf or something like that. And like. all this... All this doomsday, doomsday stuff, which has been written about climate change and sort of the hysteria being generated by Greta Thornburg and the like, is is really you know potentially very destabilizing for our kids' generation if they're not being taught to think critically about the robustness and uncertainties of those models, which all of these forecasts are relying on. Um, they, it's it's quite dangerous, and I see now that some scientists are starting to worry that they've got the younger generation in such a despair that they're starting to think, well, there's there's no point in mitigation because we're all going to die anyway. Yes, no <laughs> point in having children. I I got to admit something to you and to listeners. I was one of those people on the other side of this argument because I became a dedicated environmentalist at high school and went off to university and studied biology. And then I studied sort of resource management and a little bit of economics. And I came across that article by Robert Solo. And I think there was a guy, Han or Khan, someone mm. writing, and then Julian Simon writing. And I read their articles and I didn't, I, I couldn't imagine that they were saying that they could write such tripe. <laughs> and the idea to me that we could just go on and on and on and on digging, you know, oil and minerals out of the ground forever and ever ad infinitum and that we could go on and on and on ripping up ecosystems and destroying the fabric of ecological stability. And I went off to study economics to prove that they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and in the process, to my horror, I discovered that it was me. Yeah, I, and I, uh, although my wife's advice to any young girl is, is never marry an economist, that they're, they're too pessimistic. I think, <laughs> I, I think fundamentally it's a time horizon thing, and economists tend to be more optimistic because we've seen, you know, the power and wonder of human creativity yes. and invention given the past. We, yes. we, we, you know, since the 19th century, we've seen, you know, a whole, you know people were basically all peasants and suddenly we've got yes. the wealthy class and everyone's doing so well. And it's, yes. it's been one of the most phenomenal things in the history of mankind, really, the, the growth and dispersion of, of prosperity in countries which have opened themselves up to it. So... Um, we yeah we economists I find on a long enough time horizon we're the optimists it's the Malthusiasts who who can't see any alternative but a grim continuation of the current trend who are the pessimists and that human beings are incapable of of doing anything about it even yeah these these climate change models. Um, they, they tend to um, assume that there'll be no adaption along the way. Mm. So when they come to the costs, assessing the costs in 2100, 
they, they've assumed uh, no defensive reaction. We've, we've all sort of got our houses still down by the waterline waiting to be flooded again for the 50th time that year. Yes. Um, so so it, that's that same sort of Malthusian thinking that they, they don't see humans as adapting and changing and um, uh, adjusting to events as they unfold. So that, that tends that's, to be well, the, the right. hysteria. Yeah. Bryce, you have given us a a literal tour de force of um, economics, of models and their limits of economic history through the 70s and 80s and to now, and uh, productivity, and given us a great insight into your life, um, which has been truly wonderful. And I'm, I wanted to introduce you to listeners because I'm hoping to have you on again next time you put out a note and you've got information to share because your insights are absolutely wonderful, Bryce. Oh, thank you. You're, you're talking to a guy who's, um, who's interested in economics as both a hobby and a career and a profession. Yes. Yeah. It's a passion. Uh, that You're on Reality Check Radio. That was... Um, the wonderful uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, now with the New Zealand Initiative, uh, but being, I guess, most prominently at uh, the New Zealand Treasury through the tumultuous years, uh, fabulous insight into economics and the economy. And I certainly always learn a lot every time I sit down to talk with Bryce. So um, if he's willing, we'll definitely have him back. Uh, thank you for listening. You're on Reality Check Radio with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.